Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we are spinning up a new kind of series of talks around the modern, the future of vulnerability, vulnerability management, and the future of cybersecurity, and, and how we see that in this world, in this world of evolution. Today, I have the utmost pleasure and the honor to have a very tall leader into the space, Walter Hedilot, that is joining us today to discuss a little bit on what, what's our view, what's the modern world and what's the old world and the new world where we are progressing. Walter has been in the space for a very long time, comes from uh, intelligence and marine corps and then evolved and has been a thought leader in the space. And usually you can find him on LinkedIn sharing his thoughts together with his article and deploying securely his blog the article on LinkedIn, but also on LinkedIn, you can find a lot of his thought process. But without further ado, I'll stop talking and I'll introduce Walter. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Appreciate you bringing me on and uh, looking forward to speaking with you and and, uh, hopefully sending a few uh, tidbits of knowledge your audience's way, things I've picked up (laughs) along the way. And uh, yeah, so looking forward to the, the conversation. Just one caveat that I'm speaking in my personal capacity and, uh, you know, I have some some opinions, but they are only mine. None of my employers or, or current or, or former affiliations, just mine. Absolutely. I think that's, that's very important in, in terms of cybersecurity, just a disclaimer <laughs> to inform everybody that we talk in the presence of just two individuals sharing their thoughts and sharing their so tell me a little bit more about yourself. How did you stumble? How did you start in cybersecurity? What attracted yeah. you to this career? Yeah, yeah. So I, I started my career in government and uh, was a military officer. I then moved to the civilian side of things while staying in, in government. I worked on Capitol Hill as a staffer for the House Homeland Security Committee, which has, uh, has some remit on uh, the cybersecurity side of things. I did a really interesting investigation into the Department of Homeland Security, how they kind of uh, run their uh, information systems and, and data sharing and things like that. Uh, that report right. was published uh, a, a while back. And then uh, decided that I wanted to move into the private sector. I went to business school and then started working as a product manager at a relatively uh, large publicly traded company, uh, doing software in a relatively safety critical space, industrial internet of things. And uh, you know, that really kind of honed my awareness of, of, of the threats and the challenges that, uh, that the software world faces. And, uh, you know, that's where I started developing my, my strong opinions on, on vulnerability management. You know, obviously, there's a lot of scrutiny right. on, on those types of products. And, uh, and then after that, I, I moved over to a data governance startup where, where I currently am and uh, am focused on kind of another side of security on the um, you know data privacy and, and regulatory compliance aspect but but at the same time you know even security products need uh, to conduct vulnerability management and, and patching and things like that so <laughs> so keeping one uh, one foot in that realm as well and and then also started blogging last year on vulnerability management and cybersecurity risk management issues and have been really enjoying that I find a lot of good engagement from 
from folks I, I uh, interact with and uh, get a lot of good ideas from them and try to, you know, package that all up and into something that's, that's useful to, to other folks. And, you know, uh, one person uh, who I, I forget who it was, but mentioned that it's good to write a blog, even if you're, even if you're just writing notes to yourself, because right. you know, you've got a, a public record of, of all the things that, that you think, and you can question them and interrogate them and, and uh, make sure it all makes sense. Yeah, committing things on paper, I, I, I love that, that because it clarifies your thinking and, and it keeps you accountable and honest with yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Especially if you don't miss the line of thought. And maybe on that space, how did you find the move from, you know, the more government space, the more um, restrictive space that is traditionally government into the more public space? What, what, what did you like? What did you, didn't you like? How did you experience that change in that transition? Yeah, great, great question. So I think uh, my governor government experience was pretty broad. Uh, you know, even though I, you know, I spent well potentially almost a decade in, in government service, so I, I got a lot of different perspectives. I'd say in some places the uh, bureaucracy and the, all, all the you know unnecessary rules that that you probably thinking of that that's all valid uh, in in certain areas, but in other areas. Especially in the in the Marine Corps, the uh, you know when when the going gets tough, kind of the 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 rules melt away a little bit, Bench. which is good. It just mainly by necessity. So you know, I think people who've been in in the military just kind of are forced to develop a problem solving mentality and mindset that is is very useful, and and I found that to be to be helpful. And you know, there there are a lot of people who, who like cutting through the the red tape. Uh, uh, on the military side of things, although you know people also enjoy creating red tape in in the military and the and the broader government. That's brilliant. Thank you for for the insight. So we had uh, we had several veteran a different space in security on the podcast, and it, it seems to give when you come out of the military as a veteran, it seems to give a superpower in cybersecurity. Would you agree or disagree? I would say the yes, and the biggest superpower that you have is decision-making because, you know, there are a lot of smart people in the security world and sometimes they're even too smart for their own good in that they will endlessly uh, think about and debate and discuss uh, whatever item may be under consideration when after a certain point, you know, you're going to hit diminishing returns and being able to pick a course of action and execute it is that's going to be more valuable in many cases than making the absolute perfect decision. So decision-making is that's the most important tool that, that I picked up in my time. I love how you distill that because I see that a lot with debates, especially on, on, on public debates. I see that a lot. And yeah, I appreciate that somebody coming from the media is like, okay, let's get it done. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think uh, coming from the military, I mean, in your job in, in, in other locations, have, have that given you an edge in crisis management or in rapid decision-making or rapid, or rapid assessment of, of risk and you know, assessment on the fly? Yeah, I would say so. Something that I uh, picked up is if you ever find yourself doing something twice, you should probably write down a process for it. Because if you've done it twice, you're probably going to do it three times, you know, a hundred times, a thousand times in the future. So being able to rapidly develop a process or a framework for how to tackle 
a problem, mm -hmm. I find to be super helpful. And you know, I'm sure you and all your listeners have been in those situations where there's a kind of a little bit new, a little bit novel situation. And it, it kicks off what I describe as a, an email avalanche where, you know, <laughs> people just start emailing and, you know, the amount of responses grows and grows and it's kind of hard to track exactly what's going on. So having just even a simple playbook, uh, standard operating procedure can really save you a lot of time during crisis situations when, when time matters. Uh, I really appreciate that. I think that's, that's a tidbit of, of knowledge, a gem of knowledge that will, especially with COVID and a lot of the remote work tend to escalate. And in, in those kind of situations, how do you find a part one agreement? You know, in, in cybersecurity, we tend to have endless debate with different parts of the business and the organization. How do you crack that, that shell and that egg? How do you find an agreement? Yeah, so I find that it's helpful to use the, the four techniques of, of risk management and, and kind of distill that down to uh, with, with whomever I'm speaking. So if people you know, express concerns about a cyber risk or a business risk, you know, I'll, I'll say, look, you know, there, there are four things we can do here. We can, we can mitigate this risk. We can transfer this risk, we can avoid this risk, or we can accept this risk. You know, those are those are really your four options. There, I mm. haven't heard of anyone voice any other technique that you can use uh, with risk. Avoiding, say, you know, avoid. No, avoid. <laughs> that is no. You can avoid the risk, although from a business perspective, that usually means like exiting the market or shutting right. down your product. So, you know, that brings with it itself that's some commercial risk you have if you shut down yeah. your, your your SaaS deployment or what have you. So, just clarifying that these are your options and you know well i guess i suppose one of the options is just make no decision which sometimes people do make and i i would you know i i would say that it's probably better to make a decision than than not all things all things being equal but distilling it down to those four options i think is useful and kind of clarifies the the problem right. the situation for folks no I, I like well it was more of a ch uh, chicken tongue or tongue in cheek yeah. kind of joke where you say you know i want to ignore the problem but that that's <laughs> effectively is is accepting passively the risk right you are yeah you're accepting yeah. the status quo at least right and actually on on that subject you know we, we saw a lot of talk of recent, especially in the last year, around uh, quantification about risk management versus traditional vulnerability management. And I, I was pleased to see a lot of misconception of the traditional severity of a problem equal risk, where there was a lot and potentially, hopefully, <laughs> a move forward towards a more risk-based approach around security problem in general, but in the specific area of vulnerability management, I saw a very big push towards a more risk-based approach. Would you agree? What's your view on that uh, on that aspect on that move? Yeah, I think that where we are in 2022, we have the tools necessary to apply a much more sophisticated lens to the problem of vulnerability management than we did maybe, you know, five or 10 years ago. And, you know, in a perfect world, I would say, you know, if there's a vulnerability and there's a patch, then patch it, you know, pretty simple, right? You just know, like, fix it, right? <laughs> just fix it, right? It's, <laughs> just do it's it. easy. Just do it. I, am, I completely 
agree that that is, it's the simplest. I don't think it's the mm. easiest, but it's the simplest solution. But then you get into situations where, okay, the business is worried about downtime due to breaking changes in the, in the patch or, you know, the, uh, you know, there are 70,000 vulnerabilities in the network and the IT team can't apply, you know, patches, you know, they can apply 10 patches a week or something like that, you know, and you're basically never going to get to the bottom of the stack. So, you know, in the perfect world, if there's a problem, you just fix it immediately. But unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a very imperfect world. So prioritization of vulnerabilities to resolve is the most important discipline, subdiscipline of vulnerability management, because otherwise you're in a situation where, you know, you've got 10,000 vulnerabilities and they're all CVSS nine or above, you know, Mm -hmm. I agree that's bad. It's suboptimal, but, you know, we need a way to go through that stack in a, in a manner that is more sophisticated than just saying fix everything. Right. And I really like the fact that you mentioned, you know, it's easy to say just fix it because a lot of security team are traditionally just pushing SLA and right. uh, service level agreement or service level right. objective where they just say, you know, you have five days to fix vulnerability right. without understanding the ripple effect of that, like right. business effect and other stuff. Would you say that, you know, the fixing things or, or just fix it is actually a business problem rather than a security problem and is misseen as a security problem? Yeah, I, I would say, well, it often becomes a business problem when, <laughs> when when the engineering team's like, well, we'll just drop everything. And the, you know, the the finance folks or the the you know the product team is like, what are, what are you doing? You can't you can't stop new feature <laughs> development. So I would say it is a uh, it is an over-indexing on one type of risk on cyber risk. It is saying wow. that, you know. Under no circumstances will we tolerate any chance of exploitation. Uh, although I would say, in the vast majority of cases, there's actually zero chance of exploitation for, for a lot mm-hmm. of uh, CVEs, you know, barring some crazy set of circumstances. So uh, I think security teams are, they focus on cyber risk, which makes sense, but they view that as kind of the end of the conversation when I would say it's actually the beginning of the conversation. And right. that's why it's, uh, in my opinion, you should not have security leaders being responsible for those risk management decisions. Those should be business leaders who are accountable for the entire picture. Those are the ones who should be making the decisions. The security leaders are advisors. They will say, you know, here's the probability, here's the severity of this type of event, but they shouldn't be the ones making the call because if they make the call, they're like, okay, well, fix everything. (laughs) Just fix it, right? Just fix it. Back to where we started, you know, which is understandable if they're the ones who are, whose head, whose head would be on the chopping block if something goes wrong. But, you know, we don't live in a world where you can assume zero risk. You got to assume some risk to to move forward. Right. And I think maybe full on on that question, I, I really like where this is going, because I think it's, it's where vulnerability management and risk assessment and risk management should really be going. But how do you empower fundamentally business leader to really, really understand the risk level of the position? Because if you just say, you know, I have 4,000 vulnerability, so what? Is that good? Is that bad? <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. And bottom line, I think 
security professionals need to speak in terms of dollars of risk because, or, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, pounds <laughs> or, or, or whatever, whatever unit of currency that the business is using, that's really how you need to communicate because mm-hmm. otherwise a business person whose specialty is not security is going to look at a statistic like 4,000 vulnerabilities and have no idea what it means. You know, to, in their mind, you know, the first time they hear that, they're like, how haven't we been hit, you know, hundreds of times? Why aren't we, why aren't we completely locked up with ransomware? Why, aren't, why isn't all our confidential, out, right. confidential information out in the, in the public sphere? Like, how could, how could it be that we have so many vulnerabilities, but we haven't been hit? You know, mm-hmm. obviously hit. And, you know, it takes a lot of discussion to say, well, like, you know, actually only five to 10% of these are truly exploitable. And, you know, of those, we have compensating controls for, for some of them. However, you know, these top three or top 10 or whatever, these are actually really bad. And this is a, yes. this is a concerning situation. And like, we need funding to fix this, or we need to pull this product line down or, you know, what, what have you, because when you just give them the, you know, if you email them a spreadsheet with 4,000 CVEs on it, you know, they're rightfully going to have no idea what, what you're talking about or what to do with that. Right. And I really like that dollar numbers and risk ultimately or risk position. But you mentioned something. You mentioned fundamentally what is traditionally called triaging. So looking at the problem overall, talking with each dev team, looking at where the vulnerability are and how bad each one of them are. But that's enormously time consuming. Yeah. Um, sometime and usually, you know, application security specialists or more infrastructural traditional patch management specialists are a rare commodity uh, in organization. You usually have one for, you know, if you're lucky for hundred developers. If you're unlucky, you have one for five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so you, it's, it's difficult to scale, I think, and we have a problem of scale where we, I think, traditionally and. I want to reconnect to the old versus new world where we're going. Traditionally, we've always been stuck on looking at the problem in an atomic fashion, in a non-contextualized fashion that has created, you know, maybe the cumulative problem that we have right now. So how do you see us going forwards? How do you see the world going forward in, in this kind of new modern world? And, and do you agree that we're going, we're going to the right direction right now in this particular last couple of years? I definitely think we are headed in the right direction. I think we're going pretty slowly. Mm. Something that uh, that you are very familiar with, but I, you know, I'm not sure your audience is is the exploit prediction scoring system, which is a uh, publicly available assessment of the likelihood of exploitation of every published CDE ever. Uh, mm-hmm. If I if I have it correctly, which is an excellent resource that. You know, a lot of organizations, frankly, every time I mention it to a security leader, uh, they say, oh, wow, that's that's super interesting. That, that's great. And so I really want to get the word out about it uh, because it's such a great tool um, that can really allow you to do that bulk analysis of the thousands of issues. And again, you know, it it's not perfect. It's a heuristic measure. It's something that is uh, generated by a machine learning algorithm. Right. It's not necessarily going to take into account the peculiar aspects of your network, but all things being equal, you know, it allows you to do a rank ordered assessment of the problems of the vulnerabilities in your network pretty quickly, especially if tens of thousands of them. And then you can go to the top of the list and say, 
you know, that's where you can focus your, your technical resources to do investigation and mitigation if appropriate. So I think we're headed in the right direction. I think we're headed slowly. And, mm-hmm. you know, I still do see a lot of uh, reactions where it's, you know, well, you have 50 criticals in this software. And then, you know, you respond and you say, well, you know, here's X, Y, Z, here's here's our response. And actually, you know, that scanning tool detected something that was like published in 2008. So that's not even in our product. Like that product line's been discontinued or the CVEs logged against some very, you know, um, very narrow set of circumstances. Like, you know, it's just, you need to do side channel attack to get on, uh, to, to, to uh, take over the victim process. So yeah, I, st- I think we're heading in the right direction, but slow. Right. And yeah, thank you for the shout out for EPSS because first yeah. doesn't do enough marketing on that, but it's changing they need to slowly. Do more. <laughs> it's changing slowly. So, uh, I'm, you know, like, like you, um, uh, we're part of now the group of APSS and we finally have a have a logo <laughs> or maybe have a logo. So there should be some more marketing and a publicly available API that everybody yeah. can use. And That's huge. That is massive. And I think the data get refreshed every week, every day can mm-hmm. kind of get digested and calculated. So it's in, in absence of contextualization, that gives you kind of the prediction score. I don't necessarily agree on the percentile, but that's a different <laughs> a whole tradition, uh, a whole different story. But in all things considered, that gives you a good idea of is this thing exploitable, yes or no, in the wild, and you know what thing should I focus on more and more. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of AppSec Phoenix Limited. AppSec helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security problems by using smart data aggregation and complex machine learning software. Discover how AppSec Phoenix helps CISO and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at www.appsecphoenix.com. AppSec Phoenix is the new and smart dev-first way to manage your software vulnerability. Follow the tag, hashtag AppSecSmart. Aside from APSS, what other factor would you consider interesting for an analyst to look at during triaging? Yeah, so once you get down to, you know, past EPSS, it gets a little more challenging. You need to be, you need to do things more manually, Uh, you know, the the best way to evaluate something is to you know you need a developer to go in and it, you know the ve- developer will need access to the first party code so if it's your software you can view the interaction of you know a third party library and the, and the first party code that's time consuming but it will give you a very good idea of whether or not somebody could exploit it um, so you, so you can rule things out looking at vendor advisories and, and open source advisories about um, vulnerabilities is super helpful. Unfortunately, there's not really a scalable way to do that because uh, a lot of these are in free text or you know non right. non machine readable formats. But you know if you there there's some there's one Ubuntu vulnerability that I love to cite because it's a CVSS 9.8. But if you go to the Ubuntu, if you scan it and you find it in Ubuntu, it, you know pops up as a critical. It's like oh man, this is a big deal. But if you go to the Ubuntu page, it says well actually this is only exploitable if you remove a patch that is applied by default for all builds of Ubuntu. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, that's almost like not a vulnerability. It's not actually a vulnerability. That's like saying, you know, 
oh, if you open, you have a publicly accessible RDP port, you're going to get hit with ransomware. Well, <laughs> yes, that is, I agree with that statement, but you know, I, maybe we need to have a, a user education session to say not, not to do that. But yeah, that's almost, that's almost to the point of uh, not, not really being a vulnerability. So bottom line is that you, you kind of need to start with a funnel. You need to use the most automated rapid tool at the top, which is EPSS, or if you have a, a proprietary scoring system, um, you can use that. I know Kenna, Vulcan, those are some vendors that, that have proprietary tools. You, you go you go down a level, you look at the uh, the vendor assessments, see, see what the vendor or the open source provider says about, about the vulnerability in their product. And then kind of at the bottom of the stack is uh, just a manual technical investigation. Although I will say, I know there are some uh, tools, for example, the company MEND, formerly known as White Source, they do have a capability where they can examine what classes are being used in a third-party yes. uh, product. So kind of automating that that technical analysis, which, uh, you know, I've heard mixed reviews about how well it works. Um, and, you know, but it's it's probably better than nothing to, to get that initial uh, cut on the data. Yeah, and then there is the RASP technology that try to look at the uh, code inside the code, but it's mixed yep. feeling about that. Sometimes it's heavy on the system, so and it is in memory of a lot right. of your process. So if a third party get exploited, you know it's already sitting in memory where most of the data is normally unencrypted. So it's right. there is a lot of skepticism around RASP or yep. similar word technology. But I agree with you. It's it's I think it's a problem of scale. It's a problem of scale and reachability and triaging or really using. Uh, I like to use the sentence using security team as a scalpel, not, not a sledgehammer. So right. not going around and chase, please patch, please patch, but actually, right. you know, doing the triage on vulnerability could be potentially dangerous, but we need a lens to direct those people into those kind of points. What do you think of the status of asset management? Because it's it's, it's heavily linked, in my opinion, on on the cause of all this, because you don't know where, where those vulnerabilities are, because you don't know what, where you're sitting on most of the time or not in a programmatic way. Right. Yeah, I think I agree that asset management is kind of the, not the flip side, but it's a necessary counterpart or it's something that you need to consider uh, as part of your risk management program because you know it's all well and good to know that you've got a 90% chance or a 1% chance of exploitation of a given vulnerability. But the question, the, the immediate subsequent question that you need to ask is, okay, if an attacker exploits this vulnerability, what's going to happen? Is it, are they going to take down the Amazon e-commerce portal? Like, if so, that's millions of dollars a day in yes. damage. Um, so, you know, you probably, there are a lot of, you, you know, any any sort of purchase or, you know, remedial activity that you need to take is probably going to be worth it in that case. Or is it some, you know, random leaking metadata uh, from from some, you know, some other portal? From the cafeteria, yeah, I actually use that analogy a lot. Like, oh, can they see tomorrow's menu instead of today's menu? Oh like, my god! Yeah, yeah, okay, maybe. Like, that's that's not really, you know, that's not really that big a deal. But right. you won't know that unless you know about the assets that are underlying the, uh, you know, underlying the, the, the network. And that's, that's actually where security professionals kind of lose, potentially lose credibility and, and just don't know what's going on. It, it's not necessarily their job to like 
understand deeply the, the business value of, of the assets they're protecting because that would take, you know, the business owners will probably need to do that, but they should have an idea and they should be able to speak intelligently about like, how does this company make money? How do, you know, how could we lose money? What's our, what's our right. number one corporate priority? And then you can drill down into the granular level and see like, oh, okay, well, this, if this VM goes down, like that's a major problem. But if, if that VM or that database gets corrupted, like it's, yeah, it's bad. We should avoid it, but it's not going to be the end of the company as we know it. Yeah. And I think I, I do I totally agree with you. It's it's a business problem, but they that affect particularly security because you can't scale. And sometimes security professionals don't even have remotely the time to even discuss and say, what system am I working on? Right. And then that, that that's one of the reasons why they burn out. My fear in the and, and I want to hear your opinion about that is you know, we train security professionals for a lot of years and the new generation now get faced with an enormous complex system. And I was chatting literally the other day with a young professional that, that was speaking, how do I get in zero trust without even understanding how the basic networking fundamental works? How do we face the new millennia with, you know, the new generation coming in that needs to pick up the pace with a very, very, very complex stack? What's your opinion on it? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there are the technical aspects and then there are the philosophical aspects. I think people jump pretty quickly to the technical aspects without uh, diving into the philosophical ones first. So understanding, you know, what am I trying to do here? Uh, I, I ask that I ask that question frequently in, in my personal interactions. You know, like what what are what's our objective here? You know, people will index heavily and say like the tool found this or you know there's this signature or there's this port open or you know. And those are important pieces of information to have, but you should really start with what is our objective here? What are we trying to do? And, you know, we're trying to, for the most part, try to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. And, you know, you, you chuckle a little bit, but sometimes people don't necessarily, <laughs> they're not really focused on that. They're just focused on, oh, you know, I got this alert from this logging tool or, or what have you. So, thinking about what the objective is starting there is really important before you start diving into the tools. And, you know, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, you know, kids these days are, are very, very technical. You know, they've got all these uh, gadgets and things. So the technical side could potentially be easier for, for some of them. You know, right. they grow up, they grow up using these uh, devices and, you know, they, they, they're internet native and, and things like that. When, you know, they should maybe focus a little more on what business process am I trying to enable? What asset am I trying to defend and why? So focusing on the why I think is very important. And you can get yourself into some pretty unproductive discussions very quickly. If you just start, you know, debating, you know, you, you're arguing over what the tool found, uh, you know, which you probably, that's not really a debatable point, but the question of what does it mean? That is debatable. And that's mm. really what, what is important? I love I love that because I think I think it's true. Uh, we we might focus on on the burning fire on the how, but without thinking about the why we're doing a specific thing. And by asking the why question, we underscore unravel a lot of motives, or it gets out of the firefighting. You know, you need to the common one that I hear between security professional and developer is prove me that this is exploitable you know, develop and exploit uh, without understanding 
what are we doing here? Right, right. I, I like the wine. And maybe reconnecting on that, what is maybe between the traditional qualitative versus quantitative approach on risk? What is, in your opinion, the one that works best in the conversation between, you know, security professional and the rest of the business? All things being equal, speaking with precision and using numbers is, is preferable in my, in my opinion. Now, there's a certain amount of overhead that it takes to generate those numbers in the first place. And when you're in crisis situations, you know, sometimes you need to make uh, what I would call recognition primed decision making. I'm, I'm taking that actually from my, from my military uh, experience. You know, you, you have, you're, you're always balancing your decision making between two types. You've got recognition primed, which means, you know, what is, what does my gut tell me? You, you rapidly mm-hmm. synthesize information and you have to make a decision. And that's more on the qualitative side of, of risk management. You know, you're kind of green, yellow, red, uh, or, or, or high, medium, low type, type assessments. And sometimes that's all you can do based on, the, uh, based on the situation and how much time you have available. And then on the other end is the analytical side where you can do discrete analyses of uh, you know, what, what the assets at risk are, what the probability of exploitation is. And you're always going to be bouncing between those types of uh, analysis. You, know, you can never present just, you know, if you just give someone a number and that's it, you know, a person won't, won't understand. Yeah. What's the context? What does this mean? But, and then if you say, you know, oh, this is, this is really bad. You know, a, a CEO might say, oh, okay, that's the 10th really bad thing that someone's told me about today. How, how, how really bad is this really bad thing? And that's when quantitative <laughs> Risk management comes into play, and you know you can say, okay, well, this is a this is a five thousand dollar vulnerability, or is this a five hundred thousand dollar vulnerability? Because you know, to me, if if I lost five thousand dollars, like that would be a pretty big deal for me. But if you know, I brought up the example of Amazon. If you're Amazon and you lose five thousand dollars, yeah, that's bad. That's something they want to avoid. But it's like, what's the opportunity cost? You know, right. is is this going to take is this going to take uh, a development team like a week to fix this? Uh, probably might not be worth it if that's the case because they've got other higher priority things they can be working on. So quantitative risk management, quantitative calculation is how you answer those tough questions. Oh, brilliant. And, you know, I love data. And so I'm a data guy. So I always go back to data, but I do agree with you that it takes a lot of effort and maturity into getting into that process where you have enough data and tools and knowledge and buy-in from the organization to actually go and do quantitative analysis. And that's why a lot of organizations just to finger in their high, medium, critical, low, you know, what, what, what did the tool find? And let's react to that. And I think as an industry, we're doing a disfavor because there is a stream of thought that it just fix all the problem as soon as they come. That I think it's great on the shift left perspective, but then force us to keep on doing the same problem over and over and over. That is, we don't move from the conversation of high, medium, and low. We, we still remain with the same asset management problem, non-communication, non-contextualization. And then we have our stream that's tried to take an approach of, let's speak with the business and see an assessment from a risk perspective, from a quantification perspective. So are we shooting ourselves in the foot yet over again as an industry? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully not. Uh, I, I still see, you know, People are often hesitant to speak with precision 
just it's a natural human tendency, especially in a professional context, because once you say a number, like you can be held accountable for that mm-hmm. number. But I would say that's that's good. That's good. You know, if you can uh, if you can have a clear position that you can articulate, then you know you can determine whether whether you were close or not. Although I will say, like, you know, this is this is mainly a joke, but from a problem, if you're ever stating a probability, you know, as long as you don't say zero, then you can be like, well, I told you there was a 1% chance it would happen, but I, I wouldn't recommend that approach. Um, but just as kind of a, a way <laughs> to alleviate, gray area. Yeah, alleviate people's concerns. But yeah, you know, if you, if you say, if you say 10% versus 70%, like that is substantial difference, but you know, maybe a one security professional says, a 10% chance of exploitation is high. And maybe another one says that a 70% chance of exploitation is high. So, you know, a, a, a business person hearing that might actually make two very different decisions mm-hmm. based on based on the qualitative input when actually what they meant was the, the two different security professionals was something quite different. So I think that if you are going to communicate in qualitative terms, you open up the opportunity for, for misunderstanding and miscommunication. Right. But data, data can be helpful in that case, but unhelpful on the, other, on the other case because there isn't a broader understanding of what is that data. That's why, from a personal perspective, I love risk because everybody understands risk. So a scale of risk and then how you calculate and maybe familiarize the business on how you calculate that risk enables everybody to make an opinion, even though they don't know what's sitting underneath or what fire sitting underneath. There is a whole topic of discussion and debate on how accurate are you calculating the risk, but that's there's a whole different podcast, I guess. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, and I agree. You know, no, you're you're never. I mean, you can't look backwards if you've got a big organization. You can look over the past ten years and say, like, oh well, how many incidents did we did we suffer, and you know, things like that. And it's never going to be. You're never going to be a perfect predictor of risk. But if you're generally close enough. You know, there's a lot of research too that it shows if you mm-hmm. give a specific if you give specific goals, you're much more likely to hit them than if you give vague goals. So I think that's just a useful uh, useful technique. No, that's that's brilliant. And maybe now that we're coming close to the conclusion, what is maybe the three advice that you will give professional that are looking at the problem and, and are a bit confusing because maybe they're starting in their vulnerability management space or they want to get better at it or they find themselves completely overwhelmed in an enterprise with the complexity of the enterprise? What would be the three takeaways that in your career you've taken military and non-military because I love the mix of the two? Yeah. So first, I would say learn how to make decisions because especially for, for junior folks, it's very intimidating to try to make a decision I would say even just make a recommendation, you know, just be very, be clear, be able to back up your position with uh, evidence. It could be quantitative uh, or it could be qualitative, but be able to make recommendations and decisions that are clear and unambiguous. I mean, we've all in the corporate world been in situations where, you know, it's kind of three or four executives who are all at the same level and they're kind of talking around the problem. And then it's not really even clear, like what, the decision is and the implementers all might have different ideas of what the uh, what the desired outcome of of the you know of the meeting was so being able to uh, clearly articulate 
recommendations and then you know, make decisions when you, when you have the authority to do so. That's number one. Number two, I would say do learn how to code. I think it's less important what language you use, although I think Python's a good good entry point, but not so much because you're going to be right. in there with a developer fixing bugs. But first of all, you need to understand like how data flows through a system because if you don't, then understanding exploitability or you know consequences or, or things like that, it's going to be much harder to do if you don't know how to how to code. Uh, you know, I taught myself relatively later in life and it was, it, let me tell you, it was a struggle. So, so get started early when you're brain is more malleable. So that's, that's number two. And then number three is uh, from that, learn how to do data analysis, like just really basic stuff, extract, uh, transform load, you know, being even, even on a spreadsheet, know how to do um, basic calculations and, and, and visualizations, because that is something that uh, people, people will at least, at least people need to contend with data if you, if you bring it to them, if it's just an opinion or a verbal statement, or I think, or in my experience, that's just very easy to write off. But if you have, if you show someone some data, then they actually need to engage with it. They need to say, oh, well, I don't, I disagree with how you're framing this, or you're using the wrong variable, or I have different data or something like that. But uh, being able to speak uh, it, using data would be, would be the third thing I would say. I love that. I love data backing, opinion backed up by data is, is much stronger argument. Brilliant. I think we, we come out of time. I really love the conversation. I think we touch on really key points and things that are, they are really close to my heart. But for everybody, they want to know more about you. They want to follow you. They want to uh, read your blog. Can you give our audience a little bit more insight on where they can find you and uh, where you blog? Sure. Sure. So I primarily post on LinkedIn. Uh, Walter Haydock is my name. I'm also on Twitter recently, Walter underscore Haydock, because you can't have spaces in, in Twitter. And then my blog is my last name, Haydock, H-A-Y-D-O-C-K dot substack dot com. And you can sign up for that uh, to receive emails every two weeks. That's when I write on kind of the the latest and greatest from, from my neck of the woods. And you can also check out previous issues as well, uh, going back to when I started the blog, uh, approaching a year ago now. Great. Fantastic. Walter, thank you so much. I'll uh, make sure that we'll engage more on the conversation on Monday. <laughs> a pleasure right. meeting with you. And thank you very much. This was your host, Francesco, Walter Haydock. Thank you very much for joining the show. Everybody else, stay safe go and engage with your organization and talk data. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com.